So, you know, Tim, one thing we haven't talked yet about in mm. the last couple of weeks, uh, Anthony Bourdain, because ah. we have covered some of his stuff on this show. and uh, Yeah, yeah, it was particularly right after the other um, uh, Kate uh, Spade. Uh, yeah, Kate Spade. Uh, yeah. And then that, uh, it, and, you know, I don't know, it was just one of those very bizarre moments. Uh, you know, Sherman, a uh, friend, uh, friend of ours. From, from uh, Augustus, Into the Badlands. Into the Badlands, uh, a noted actor, good friends with Anthony Bourdain. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. So he was, was really sort of devastated by that. But yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a really odd thing, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a reminder that, uh, you know, even people who seem to have it all don't have it all. Yeah, yeah. You just really never know what's going on in somebody's head or no. what little dark things they're struggling with. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I suppose mostly it just makes me appreciate, you know, my life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, 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 I got all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems. Uh, I do not want to kill myself. You know, Bourdain did leave a great legacy, though, and uh, that's the thing I think people can hang on to, which is, you know, look, the guy had demons. He was suffering inside. If you know anybody who might be, just reach out to him. You know, isolation is the worst thing, yeah. uh, especially in the age of social media, because when you're isolated, you feel even more isolated than ever before. Y you know what was interesting? They, they were talking about all kinds of statistics around suicide, you know, around those two events. Yeah. And and suddenly uh, you start hearing X number of people commit a suicide in this way and yeah. what kind of people and all of that. I did not know that way at the top of that list were white men over 50. Yeah. Way at the top of that list of yep. people likely to in some circumstance yeah. or another. And, and it breaks down in, in these sort of particular socioeconomic ways. But it's not, it's, but it, it's not as much as you would think about poor white yeah. men. No. 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 Um, uh, and I'm, and I just thought to myself, uh, you know, for one of the few times in my life, I am so glad I'm not a middle-aged <laughs> white dude. This is like they're, awesome. They're not to be a middle-aged white dude. That's right something. Now. That's something that really warrants more study, to yeah. be honest. As to you know, what kinds of, uh, I mean, is it is it uh, is it socio is it is it perhaps you know drug uh, related uh, that, that people you know are at a certain level are there stress of jobs a lot of family it seems culture to be pressure and, and, and expectations yeah in America. America. Same thing in Japan too, by the way. That's Pressure and expectations. Point, yeah. A lot of it uh, seems to be that. Uh, yeah. I think there's a there's a high suicide rate in China too. Yeah. Well, anyway. From I know I'm gonna fail, so I don't even worry <laughs> <hear> about it. <laughs> from that, my mother did away with all that. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure you live a long time, son. You're gonna fail at everything. Oh man. Well, let's get into something uh, positive, I guess. Well, from suicide to World War One. Uh, I am holding in my hands a, a Blu-ray from the Cohen Film Collection, The King of Hearts, which is an absolutely delightful and wonderful movie uh, from 1966, directed by Philippe de Broca. And uh, I have to say the best thing about this is the, uh, the audio commentary uh, by yours truly. Yeah. Uh, I had fun with this. This was a really great audio commentary to do. This is Cohen Film Collection's King of Hearts, the Philippe de Broca film from 1966. It's a really interesting movie because um, it's Philippe de Broca, again, a great French director. And this is a French film with uh, great music by Georges Delarue and, uh, you know, a great screenplay co-written with Daniel Boulanger. But it stars an English actor. Uh, it stars Alan Bates who at the time was uh, really kind of coming, you know, he was part of that whole Peter O'Toole, uh, angry young uh, man, angry young man dr yeah. hard drinking, hard living group at the time. And uh, this is a really interesting kind of a cheeky little movie about a Scottish soldier during World War One 
uh, who uh, has to, the Germans are retreating from this, you know, French village, and he's got to go in and disarm a bomb, which is quite likely co connected to the clock tower. In any case, that's sort of the MacGuffin of this whole thing. There's, uh, you know, this village has been evacuated, and um, unbeknownst to him, the the asylums from the inmate have uh, from the, the the inmates from the asylum nearby have gotten loose and occupied the village. Mm. So everyone in the village is literally a crazy person, and that's the that's the the sort of the conceit of the film. Uh, it's um, it's it's really very funny. It's incredibly well done. Dobroka is just a master of, uh, of of framing and composition, and you know the the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. But it's a really seminal film as well. Um, Pierre Lum, the great cinematographer, does a uh, has an interview on here as well, and uh, there's even a conversation between Je uh, Genevieve Bujold and Anne Thompson. Originally, I was supposed to do the commentary with uh, Bujold, mm. but that just didn't happen, so I wound up doing it myself. There's and nothing harder than doing one of those all by yourself. I've never, would, I've never done one by myself, oh but I know man. you've done a few. It's brutal. I've always <laughs> done it with you. or you got know. nobody to bounce off of. Yeah, yeah, so but it. it was a really fun commentary. A neat little movie, uh, Isabel Huppert. Uh, called Souvenir. Um, I, I kind of like this movie. In Europe, they have all of these um, uh, singing contests, national mm. singing contests, and, and then that big multinational uh, singing contest. Like, what's it called? Eurosong? Or uh, something. Uh, Euro Euro Eurovision. Euro Eurovision, right? Yeah. Uh, but, th but these sort of singing contests, uh, you know, not unlike our sort of um, mm -hmm. uh, little things that we do, only they're these national contests mm -hmm. sponsored by the state government, and they've been going on for years. So in this particular uh, movie, Isabel Huppert is, pay is playing an older lady. She just works in a, in a pate factory, mm -hmm. works in a factory, <laughs> she a job, she hates it. Uh, and she has this young co-worker, handsome young man, and he remembers her from many years ago when she was in that singing contest and won. Uh, and, uh, and, and her life sort of went sideways, and here she is now, and they sort of fall into this relationship, and, uh, and he's trying to uh, make it as a boxer, and she decides she's going to make a comeback uh, in that contest, that same contest. It's a very, very uh, uh, cute film. Uh, it's the kind of thing that I'm a little bit surprised hasn't been uh, remade already here in the United States. Uh, I can I can see this with like a net binning or something like that. You know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, uh, original features include the original theatrical trailer and a couple things like that. It's about 90 minutes long. Lovely on DVD, not Blu-ray, but very very funny. Uh, on the beach at night alone is uh, this got a little bit of attention at the Berlin Film Festival where it won Best Actress for uh, actress Kim Mani. This is a Korean film from director uh, Hong Sang-soo, and I'm not as fond of this as I think other people are. This is on Blu-ray from Cinema Guild. Uh, includes a you know a Q and A in it from the uh, New York Film Festival with uh, Hong Sang-soo and a trailer and an essay. Um, it's um, it's incredibly well acted. It's really really well acted. Uh, the idea basically it's a you know it's a a young actress who uh, has had a, a an affair with a director which has gone south and uh, it was you know then has to kind of try to put her life together afterwards a little bit touches on the Cannes Film Festival it is um uh, but it it's a little bit sparse for my taste it's uh, it's well done but it's very slow and uh, again great performance but not uh, quite in my in my neck of the woods but for some people i you know if you like the films of Hong Sang-soo you will probably love it. Definitely uh, in the same in the same vein. Um, this Laurent uh, Canet film is really really good. I, saw, I we talked. I remember talking about this on the radio show. 
It's uh-huh. called the workshop. A very intense uh, sort of social. And he did the building. class, which won, class. which won the Film, Fis- film Festival seven yeah, years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Human resource. I got uh, you, really human resource is yeah, really yeah, good movie. Yeah, yeah. Really good. And so, so this movie uh, speaks to some of the, sort of the contemporary things that are going on in the day, particularly in the uh, in the wake of the many sort of mass shootings and school shootings that that have been, you know, here in the United States yeah. and in Europe and all these kind of places. So. In this small sort of uh, fishing sort of dockyard town outside Marseille, that sort of the, the town is sort of fading away, uh, and a fairly a fairly sophisticated note writer goes to hold a workshop there with seven, uh, you know, lower socioeconomic scale young people, uh, French young French people, young French people who are you know black and Arab and uh, you know or yeah. white, but French, yeah, all of them French, yeah. Yeah, you know, that sort of ethnic dynamic going on. Which was in the class, too. Yeah, that was the, the whole thing. I mean, I yeah. love that movie. Um, and uh, this is interesting in that what they're supposed to be doing is brainstorming a story. And one of the young men keeps coming back to a story that involves a mass murder in a school. And, he, and, and he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. Wow. Uh, and, and, and sort of conceptualizer. And, and, and as he conceptualizes this, this story as they're sitting there, uh, it makes everyone quite upset. And uh, Olivia... Uh, who's who's playing the um, uh, the teacher? Uh, she wants to him to be able to be creative, but at the same time, she's uncomfortable with the way this story, this fictional story that comes from his head, is going to because it's seeming a little too real to mm. her. Uh, and it's it's about that that line, that borderline yeah. between. And man, uh, it's a really really good movie, well acted, uh, a gripping thriller in and of itself, but so socially relevant that you can't help but appreciate it. Uh, DVD here, not a Blu-ray, not a lot on it, unfortunately, but it's one of those situations where the movie is worth it all by itself. Fantastic. Got some, uh, got some Asian stuff here, uh, Chinese specifically. Um, the Monkey King 3 is the third installment in the new Monkey King series. Now, Monkey King is a character that goes deep, deep, deep into martial arts movie mythology. Uh, I personally prefer the older, cheaper Monkey King movies. Uh, Aaron Kwok, who uh, plays the Monkey King here, underneath a whole lot of makeup, uh, you know, deserves better. I think um, it's opulent. It's got CGI and you know wire work and all that stuff galore. Um, just a little bit too splashy for my taste. Nonetheless, uh, there is kind of a um, a, a an Amazonian Chinese version of an Amazonian. Society here reminds you a little bit of the Wonder Woman movie, uh, and that's sort of interesting. You know, it's got a lot of fantasy and uh, magic and all that kind of stuff in it, and you know, it, it's okay. I mean, it's fine. It, if you've seen the previous two Monkey King films, it's more of the same. Yeah. If you are familiar with the the uh, Monkey King as a character in older films, much more entertaining. Mm. Um, and then we got some uh, giveaway stuff here. Uh, Paradox. We've got two to give away. Two copies of Paradox from Wellgo. Send us an email to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com with the word Paradox in the subject line and uh, your name and address in the body of the email. And uh, make sure that the uh, email gets to us by the 2nd, Monday, July 2nd, and we will pick a winner and send two very happy people a copy of Paradox. Now, what is Paradox? Well... Uh, Paradox is a slam bang and action film, uh, which is part of the um, SPL films. If you saw, uh, you know, SPL Kill Zone, directed by Wilson Yip, who also did uh, three Ip Man movies, 
then you know exactly what to expect. This is uh, sort of the, the most brutal of Hong Kong filmmaking and the most brutal of Thai filmmaking all combined in the same movie. Uh, Louis Koo plays a uh, basically a Hong Kong cop who's looking for his daughter in Thailand, kind of like you know uh, Liam Neeson in Taken, mm. and uh, he has to really kind of you know bend some rules along with a couple of uh, local Thai cops, one of whom is Tony Jaa, and uh, it's it's explosive and it's violent and it's uh, bone crushing and uh, a lot of great stuff in it. Interesting to see Tony Jaa in kind of a supporting performance here. Um, n- again, not the featured player here. It's Louis Koo who's the star, but uh, still, you know, it's a it's a good film and it delivers the goods on an action level in ways that even Hollywood movies still can't figure out. Thai yeah. plus Thailand and Hong Kong have just done, you know, set the new bar for those films. Yo, that, they, because they're uh, they're hardcore. Yeah, aren't they? Uh, the Good Postman, man, a Bulgarian film. This is such a good film. Uh, it, it, it's set in a in, in a town uh, in Bulgaria that faces uh, Turkey. And basically, uh, this little town for for eons has been sort of like the gateway between the sort of Ottoman Empire, the Turks, and their gateway into Europe. Yeah. Uh, and uh, sort of preventing, uh, you know, everyone from traveling through. And here we are in 2016, 17, 18, uh, and you have all of these refugees seeking asylum, trying to get from various different places through Turkey uh, and out of Turkey and into Europe, Italy. You know, you, we hear these stories every day. And what's going on in this town is they're having to decide what they're going to do. If they're going to continue to be to be a blockade against people seeking asylum, or if they're going to open uh, what the, the what is called the gate and and let these people flow through. Uh, so it's about it's about the humanity of the whole thing, and it's sort of set around one particular old lady. Uh, who has decided uh, that she's going to simply start taking care of some people. It's a quite a powerful film, uh, film extremely uh, apropos to the day, that's for sure. Um, this is in Bulgarian with English subtitles. Unfortunately, not a whole lot on it otherwise. It's a DVD, not a Blu-ray. The Postman. The Good Postman, thank you. The yeah. Good Postman. Not to be confused with the uh, Il Postino Postman. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, why don't uh, yeah, I'll, yeah? Let's go into this. Moonchild. Uh, this is filmed by Auguste Auguste Vieronga, and uh, this is a cult epics release. Uh, oh, I remember that movie. Early eighties. Yeah, late eighties, eighty nine. Late eighties, eighty nine. Hmm. Uh, this is a, a really. This is very much in the uh, the Spanish surrealism kind of realm. Uh, this is uh, apparently inspired by a 1923 novel of the same name, Moonchild, by an author named Alistair Crowley. I am not familiar with the novel or the novelist, uh, but Alistair Crowley it was very all these sort of spooky uh, novels back in the day, about occultist so- so yeah. stuff, seances yeah. and stuff like yeah. that. And so it winds up being very, very eerie and weird and creepy in that way that you get with a lot of the Spanish surrealism, all the way from Dolly, all yeah. the way up to up through uh, what's his name, the uh, uh, Bunuel, Bunuel, and then the Dune guy. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Dune guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the guy who didn't make Dune. Uh, anyway, so yeah, it, it's um, the, and and the director Jodorowsky. Jodorowsky. Thank you very much. Anyway. Uh, it's very really it's very mystical. It's very surreal. Uh, it has kind of a cool soundtrack. The music is by a band called Dead Can Dance. Not yeah. familiar with them either. Are you yeah, no, they can them? dance. Yeah, can dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so not hip. They're I'm so they're out they're of it. Sort of, they're not hip anymore either, Georgia. So. Yeah. Well. Anyway. Uh, so there's a 12 year old kid here, Enrique Saldana, who uh, has been adopted by I- into this cult, and people are psychic and. Uh, 
you know, it, it, it just it winds up being this bizarre sort of altered statesy sort of uh, journey of the mind, journey of experience for this kid and, and this group of people. It's very, very weird. Beautifully photographed, but very surreal. Anyway, uh, that's probably more than you want to know about this movie. But if you're, if you're into that kind of filmmaking, DVD uh, and Blu-ray together in a dual combo set of Moonchild from Cult Epics, filmed by Auguste Vieronga. Another quick little Spanish film. Um, despite uh, the way it sounds in the context of its narrative, uh, because it's about a guy who's in an accident and becomes a, uh, a paraplegic, uh, this is a hell of a funny little comedy. And it is about a guy who's in an accident yeah. becomes a paraplegic. And his friends decide to throw him a party uh, yeah, as a sort of make him feel better. Uh, and a, a text is sent out, one of these sort of like group texts is sent out about this party uh, at Milo's house. And somehow that starts to get translated about among the many, many people that it gets sent to as an orgy rather than a party. Uh, and everyone starts to think there's going to be this big old orgy mm -hmm. at Milo's house, and they send texts to other people, and before you know it, at Milo's mansion, there's a whole bunch of people up there looking to do it. <laughs> 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 and, and, uh, which, you know, to the guy in the wheelchair, seems uh, interesting. Somebody brings a foam gun. Anyway, it turns out to be quite funny. It's called Foam Party. It's a little bit sexy uh, and cheeky. Uh, and again, uh, this is a... DVD, not a Blu-ray, without a whole lot on it, but the movie's really, really funny and sweet. You should check it out in Spanish, English, subtitles. All right, I'm going to blow through some kid vid here real quickly. Uh, for a change, we don't have a lot of Disney here, but we got, got some Nickelodeon, some uh, PBS Kids, and we're going to start off with a Warner title, uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, Emerald City. Uh, you know, this is an animated uh, appendage to the Wizard of Oz saga, uh, ten episodes in this very strange little series that uh, is not really necessary. It's not really taken from uh, the, the, the the novel, the books, the the stories. It it just sort of uses the characters to create a, a little animated series all their own. Um, look, you're better off watching the movie, but if you need something to sort of keep your kids occupied, and it's not terrible animation, it's it's perfectly fine. But I'm not sure why we need to keep doing that. Uh, PJ Masks, Save the Summer, the, uh, the very young skewing PJ Masks is back uh, from E1 Entertainment with six episodes. This is all, you know, they're like little superheroes who dress largely like animals or whatever. Um, and it's, it's all very, very educational, a little bit too much so, but it's fine, it's innocuous. Uh, we do have one from Disney, Disney DuckTales Destination Adventure. Uh, I'm not too fond of the way that they've redone Professor Von Drake and Huey, Louie, and Dewey, <laughs> and Webby, uh, and Scrooge McDuck, and, you know, that whole thing. I, I'm not particularly fond of this new animation that they're doing. It's a little too angular, a little too not classic, but they do include some, uh, some fairly decent extras on here. Uh, so, you know, if, you're, if, if your kids are into the new stuff and not like I am into the old stuff, you'll probably respond to it just fine. A couple from Lionsgate, who continues to find some really interesting uh, animation. Uh, these are both from Grindstone through Lionsgate. Now, Grindstone is that company that does a lot of stuff through Lionsgate. Most of them are really bad, like Steven Seagal and Bruce Willis action movies, mm -hmm. sometimes a Robert De Niro movie. Uh, but they also have family stuff. Uh, one of these is live action. The other one is uh, is animated, mm -hmm. and uh, the first one is Turtle Tale. That's the uh, the well. It's it's I shouldn't say it's animated. It's a live action feature with animals, CGI animals, and the and some great voice talents behind them. 
Um, so it's kind of that hybrid, that live action animation hybrid thing. Anyway, uh, the, uh, the story is really not much. It's just talking animals, especially a talking turtle. Um, and so it's a little bit more like one of those dog movies or those dog and cat movies, except it's, you know, all about a, a turtle and a, and a frog and, you know, it's, it's just swapping animals. Um, but the, the voice talents are actually not bad. Tom Arnold is really, really good. And, uh. Amber Childers and, and Lydia Hull are also really good. So, um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it, it won one of those Dove-approved things, for whatever that's worth. The other one, uh, I just don't know what to make of this. Uh, Pause P.I. This is one of those dog movies, and the only thing that makes this in any way not a total embarrassment is the fact that John Lovitz does the voice of the dog. Uh, I don't know if that's a selling point, <laughs> but uh, John Lovett's voice just makes me laugh. So there it is. Uh, Pause P.I., a dog private eye movie, <coughs> some really bad slapstick, and the voice of John Lovett says the dog. Uh, interesting, th interesting. From Nickelodeon, and I'll wrap this out with Nickelodeon and PBS Kids. From Nickelodeon, we've got The Loud House, Season 1, Volume 2. Uh, very aggressive animation, I would say, for older kids, a little bit preteen, not for younger kids. Um, if they've already started to go to school and they are, uh, they know how chaotic school is, or if they grow up with siblings and they know how chaotic that is, the Loud House is not going to do any harm. Uh, if your child is quiet and you're trying to teach them good manners, do not show them that show. No, that would not be helpful. Sunny Day from Nickelodeon, strictly for girls. This is all just about, you know, being girly girl and, and you know, hair and styling and fashion and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it, it's, it's all about, you know, this really fashionable young girl and trying to save her little dog from the dog catcher and uh, everything's very just hopelessly cute, not for boys. And then uh, The Great Summer Camp Out is a, uh, a collection of things from Nickelodeon shows. These are just one of, this is one of their potpourri releases, Bubble Guppies, Shimmer and Shine, Blaze, Sunny Day, and uh, Nella the Princess Knight. It's just one episode of each of those shows, kind of a sampler. They do this every once in a while. And then the three PBS kids uh, include Dinosaur Train, Meeting New Friends, still a really sharp show, very educational, well-animated, well-written. I enjoy this show. Eight stories here, eight episodes of the Pteranodon family in their uh, modern Stone Age or modern uh, uh, Jurassic uh, thing. Double feature from Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. Daniel goes camping and uh, Tiger family trip. And then the last one is something I had not seen. So, you know, we've um, switched up my daughter's viewing a little bit. So we're not watching as much of the original PBS Kids stuff as we used to. We're watching a lot of stuff that we have recorded on the DVR. I did not even know about this show. This is Splash and Bubbles from the uh, Jim Henson Company. Same people that do Dinosaur Train. It's called One Big Ocean. And it's kind of like the, uh, the Henson response to Finding Nemo and Finding Dory. Uh, there are six episodes here, and it's very much in the same vein as Dinosaur Train. It's, uh, it's you know, educational, and it mixes the educational in with the narrative. And uh, except it's set in the ocean, and they're telling you all about the ocean, and all about fish, and, uh, and, and oceanography, and ocean wildlife, and kelp forests. So uh, that stuff is really, really interesting. And I think I'm definitely going to make this part of our daughter's viewing going forward. Splash and Bubbles from Jim Henson on PBS Kids. One Big Ocean is the title. Jim Henson still turning them out. Uh, a couple of newbies over here. You got some, some other yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, you know what? I, I, uh, yeah, no, that's good. 
That's good. I'll pop into, I'll, I'll knock off a couple of these. Like again, another interesting movie I happen to have seen on the old radio show, Terminal. Guy who directed this movie, a uh, guy named Vince, uh, what's Vince's last name? Stein. Vince Stein. Okay. Right? Vince Stein uh, uh, was second, uh, second unit director, second assistant director, first unit director, and a whole bunch of big movies. Big, big movies. Harry Potter movies, World War Z. Uh, goes all the way back to like Dark Knight, you know, in those kind of positions on mm -hmm. those movies, right? Uh, he's only directed three films. This is one of them, Terminal. He got Margot Robbie, Simon Pegg, and Mike Myers in this mm -hmm. in this thing, right? And then I'm looking at, I'm thinking, how the hell did he do that? <laughs> uh, and uh, but if you look through some of those movies that he was a second uh, uh, unit, first assistant director, and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff on, uh, these people worked on at least one of those films somewhere. Um, I'm thinking this guy knows how to uh, 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 glad hand uh, and uh, and network. <laughs> and yeah. he networked himself while working on those big movies into right. a cast for his little terrible movie. Yeah. Uh, because that's what this is, little terrible movie. It's it's a little too uh, esoteric for my taste. You got you got Mike Myers, you got uh, you, you, uh, Simon Pegg, you got Margot Robbie. Uh, they're in this sort of anonymous city, almost like a Sin City sort of situation. Uh, she's she's uh, a, a waitress at this little diner. Simon Pegg is a customer at this diner. Mm -hmm. Diner. He yeah. seems to be sick. Uh, eventually realized that he is sick. Uh, Mike Myers is uh, dressed up in all this, uh, this wacky costume as this sort of uh, train station attendant. And then you got a couple of uh, you got a couple of uh, uh, hitmen uh, mm -hmm. who are waiting on an assignment. And all of these completely disparate things are woven together into one wacky narrative yep. that has a central mastermind sort of controlling everything. Uh, and pushing everyone toward their ultimate end. Nice. Uh, and I'm like, okay, this is all fine, except that Margot Robbie just got nominated for an Oscar like 30 seconds ago. You yeah. Know? Uh, and and shouldn't be in this movie. Simon Pegg, you know, he's in the, he's in the Star Trek movies and the sure. Impossible movies and all that kind of stuff. Why the hell is he in this movie? Yeah. Mike Myers kind of comes and goes around and does does all kinds of stuff. Y you wonder. And I'm thinking, hey, they're just buddies with this guy, and they made this goofy movie with him, and they probably shouldn't have done that. Because this is just not that good. Anyway, special features uh, include a building of the world of Terminal because it's sort of a big set piece movie. You know, yep. kind, of, kind of all takes place in just a set someplace. Um, you know, and it's highly conceptual, but it didn't quite work for me. Terminal. Um, Acrimony. Tyler Perry's Acrimony, written and directed by Tyler Perry, uh, without uh, uh, that goofy character he plays in, <laughs> in here at yeah. all, which is great. I, I, I kind of like Tyler Perry movies in which mm -hmm. Tyler Perry is not. Yeah. Uh, when he's not in them playing Medea or anybody, yeah. he's just not in them. Those movies are kind of okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just genre movies. Certainly, uh, they have a little bit better production value than you know, say TV or something yeah. like that. But you know, he gets a hell, of, he gets some actors in them, and he does them straight ahead, and uh, and whatever the manner of the genre is, and they come out okay. This one, uh, uh, Taraji uh, P Henson plays a uh, a powerful, rich and powerful woman who's married to a rich and powerful sure. guy who cheats on her a little bit, and you know what? He ought not have done that. Yeah, ought not have done that to Tyra, <laughs> to Taraji. <laughs> sorry. Um, anyway, uh, the ha hell hath no fury, acrimony. Uh, a lot of fun. Blu-ray, DVD, digital. A few features on it. What the unleashing of acrimony? Just a little video featurette kind of thing. Uh, Escape of Prisoner Six Fourteen. I got to tell you, this uh, Ron Perlman in this movie, Martin Starr. So good. This is just it's a western uh, about these two goofy deputies, right, uh, in the small town. Uh, and they capture this guy who escaped uh, from prison, but they know this guy was wrongly convicted, and they have to figure out what the hell they're going to do about it. And it's just pretty damn good. Uh, you know, it's kind of a Western, but it's a modern-day Western. 
Um, and Ron Perlman is as good as he is in anything in this movie. Again, uh, not a lot of special features on it, but you got your Blu-ray, uh, digital, Ultra DVD. What the heck? Check it out. Ron Perlman, The Escape of Prisoner 614. All right. And uh, we have next something that's going to tie into the end of the show today, The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. Now, this is a really interesting thing. The filmmaker of this is a friend of ours, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Schlesinger. Michael is a fascinating guy, a, a sort of a legendary figure in, in uh, repertory distribution at a number of studios. We'll get into all of that uh, a little bit later. Um, but, you know, uh, Columbia and MGM, and he's been responsible for, you know, keeping a lot of classic movies on screens all around you. And he decided he wanted to uh, write and direct a really cool throwback to those old comedy shorts, stuff like Three Stooges and La Abbott and Costello and Laurel and Hardy. And so with the help of two very, very talented actors, Nick Santa Maria and Will Ryan, who have this act already, Biffle mm. and Schuster, uh, they sat down and they made a series of shorts. Part and Laurel and Hardy, part Abbott and Costello, part uh, all of the Three Stooges. Yeah, uh, uh, Marx Brothers maybe part, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. You know, just a little bit of all of them. And uh, it's really, really fun, and uh, we will we'll tell you a lot more about it later. The Biffle murder case, imitation of wife, Schmoboat, Bride of Finkelstein, and It's a Frame-Up, which was the first one they made. It's the last one uh, here. Uh, tons of stuff on here, commentary on all of them by Michael and the stars. Um, there's even, you know, like, like additional stuff that they shot, and he'll talk about it as well. Uh, it's just it's, it's a ton of extras, and this is so much fun. You will laugh and laugh and laugh. You just won't believe how how funny it is, and it it all looks as if it was shot in about 1935 or 1939. It's really it's really quite clever. So that is the Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster um, by Michael Schlesinger, and we're going to wrap the show up with that interview today. So stay tuned for that. And now more uh, stuff with some. Uh, got some giveaways one more title one more new title to talk about the endless and uh, this is a really interesting science fiction film from uh this directing team known as moorhead and benson i'm not familiar with moorhead and benson yeah. you familiar with moorhead and benson yeah. previously made a film called spring uh anyway this is from wellgo it's one of wellgo's occasional non asian titles and uh the idea is that you've got these two brothers who have escaped, uh, 10 years earlier, they'd escaped from this uh, this UFO death cult, kind of like, uh, what was the thing with oh, King? That, that, like that crazy thing down in San with Diego. King Go, yeah, yeah, yeah those the guy with the crazy guy, Martin Winkle, whatever his name is. Sort of something like that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they have to go back after 10 years for reasons that are explained in the movie, and all kinds of strange phenomenon suggest phenomena suggests that the things may not have always been as they appeared. Yeah. Anyway, it's a sharp film. It's really well made. Uh, one of those that I, I wish had been properly released in theaters because uh, it would have done really well. Uh, audio commentary with the directors, uh, a lot of making of and deleted scene stuff. And we are going to give away two of these to anyone who emails it go uh, to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com. Put endless in the subject line, name and address in the body. Make sure it gets to us no later than July 2nd. July 2nd. And we will make two people happy here is what else we're going to give away thanks to paramount some things that we reviewed a few weeks ago uh we're going to be giving away two 4ks of terminator genesis oh yeah two 4ks of forrest gump oh yeah two blu-rays of trading places 35th anniversary 
two Blu-rays of Coming to America 30th Anniversary, and two copies of the Jerry Lewis 10-film collection on DVD. So, Young Eddie Murphy and Young Jerry this Lewis. Is, this is Christmas, folks, because Paramount is being really cool. Now, remember, for the Paramount stuff, uh, cannot be sent to a non-U.S. address. So all of this stuff, uh, the other stuff, you can uh, anyone who's uh, overseas can certainly uh, send us an email, like for Endless. But for, uh, for these titles, got to be a U.S. address. So if you want to be considered for Terminator Genesis, uh, send us an email to all of this goes to gods at digigods.com or gods at cinegods.com and it has to be here by July 2nd has to have your name and address in the body of the email uh, in order to be uh, in for the Terminator Genesis comp uh, uh, giveaway just put Terminator in the subject line if you want to be in for Forrest Gump put Gump in the subject line that'll get you uh, in for the 4k of each of those for the Blu-rays of Trading Places and Coming to America, put Places in the subject line uh, for Trading Places and put America in the subject line for Coming to America. And for the Jerry Lewis 10-film uh, collection on DVD, just put Jerry in the subject line. And uh, we will have some fantastic giveaways, and we'll be finalizing all of that on July 2nd. Probably reach out to you on the 3rd or the 4th and let you know if you won. Uh, so with that, we're gonna we're gonna dive into uh, some classic movies now, and uh, we've got a couple of really interesting ones to start off with from uh, Classic Flicks, which is a company we have not dealt with before, but we are happy to welcome them to our uh, to our roster of companies. And Classic Flicks is doing uh, basically a licensing thing that a lot of other companies do, going there and mining the titles of uh, studios for mm. things that nobody else has released, and the studios don't seem to have the time or the inclination to uh, go out and market themselves. And thank goodness, because these are both really terrific films, both of them with Gary Cooper. Uh, the first one, Gary Cooper and Teresa Wright, my beloved Teresa Wright oh, from – uh, oh, she's so good – uh, Shadow of a Doubt and, you know, uh, Mrs. Miniver and so many other great movies. Um, so Gary Cooper and Teresa Wright in Casanova Brown, directed by the great Sam Wood uh, and written by Nunnally Johnson Nunnally from Johnson. the Floyd Dell and Thomas Mitchell play. Uh, this was a United Artists film. Frank in Morgan in that movie, too. Yes, a great Frank Morgan. Uh, this was a... Uh, a United Artists film in 1944, when first released, now part of the MGM library. And, uh, you know, Casanova Brown is otherwise known as Casanova Q. Brown, who is a professor, played by Gary Cooper. And uh, it's one of those... Uh, it's one of those hometown things, you know? He goes back uh, hometown hoping to... Uh, hoping to, find, you know, hook up with his, with his girl again, uh, any, in any case. The the wedding does not go as planned, and uh, things go in a completely unexpected direction, and it is just delightful and wonderful, and uh, it, it just so smart. Uh, Nunley Johnson, one of the great screenwriters of all time. Yeah. Sam Wood is certainly workmanlike studio guy. And Gary Cooper and Teresa Wright, it just doesn't get any better, unless it's Gary Cooper and Loretta Young in Along Came Jones which is also just a great film. Also mm -hmm. Nunley. Also written by Nunley Johnson. This one directed by Stuart Heisler, also a very talented studio guy. The great William Demarest in that movie. Yeah. Gosh, it's just it's so good. And, you know, <laughs> I just love saying these people's names. Like I this, uh, this is my this, – these are the movies. I know. Of, anyway, go on. Yeah, I grew up on them too, man. It's like – it's great. And, uh, this was made the following year in 1945. 
And uh, this is this is Western stuff. This is you know putting Gary Cooper into his Western mode, which is always uh, refreshing and welcome. Uh, it, it's a you know it's a romance as well. It's based on a 1943 novel called *The Useless Cowboy*, which wouldn't have been a very great title for the uh, for the movie. But it's a really really funny script. It's really amusing. It's very sweet and romantic. And uh, apparently, the idea here is that. Um, Gary Cooper is kind of trying to do a bit of a spoof in the way that he performs the character. So, he, but he, regardless, he and Loretta Young are just a delightful couple, and uh, I can't say enough about this movie. It's delightful. Uh, along came Jones and Casanova Brown, both of them from classic flicks, and uh, you know, on on beautiful Blu-ray transfers. Just doesn't come any better. The reincarnation of uh, of Peter Proud, believe it or not. I went to see this movie in 1975. I think I was about 14 years old. So, uh, directed by Lee, uh, J. Lee Thompson. So, I want to say to my mom, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> At 14 years old, you let me go see this spooky-ass movie? Come on, lady. Uh, the Reincarnation of Peter Pride. Michael Sears in the film. Jennifer O'Neill. Margot Kidder, the, uh, the recently late Margot Kidder, uh, who I think I probably fell in love with uh, in this movie, even before Superman. I think she was in Superman the next year, uh, playing Lois Lane. So this movie is a, is a reincarnation movie. It's about uh, a guy named Peter Proud. I, and one of the reasons why I wanted to go see the movie is the guy's name was Peter Proud. And, you know, when you're 14, uh, you want to go see a movie with a character named Peter Proud. Had no idea what it was about. But it's a fairly sophisticated movie about reincarnation. This guy starts uh, experiencing these flashbacks, and he's drawn to this place and to this woman uh, that he uh, you know, ostensibly does not know. Uh, she is the reincarnation of his career. It's, it's a whole thing. Really, really in interesting. The kind of movie... Uh, that could probably be remade today. I mean, in the context of, uh, of, of, of you know, great cinema, it's not that good. But in the context of narrative, uh, of story, it's a really interesting sort of storyline. Remade today might be kind of interesting. This has all kinds of wonderful special features on the Blu-ray audio commentary uh, by a film historian, uh, several different languages, an animated photo gallery, uh, original this, that, and the other thing, all, you know, the, the, the trailer and, and booklet. It's really, really neat. Um, the... Reincarnation of Peter Proud. Check it out. Uh, got some Warner Archive titles, all of them on DVD-R. These are manufacturer on demand, and they're all wonderful. Uh, this is really deeping, reaching very, very, very deep into the uh, into the archive here. Uh, the Great Meadow is so. This is early, early talkie stuff, like 1931 pre-code. And they put the original artwork on the DVD, which I am so grateful for because it's that old, it's that cool kind of poster artwork drawing. Like it's oh yeah, when people yeah. Would, when people took time to do artwork, yeah, a hand drawn, poster, beautiful hand and painted, yeah. And it says a Metro Goldwyn Mayer all talking picture. Mm. And what's what I didn't, what never dawned on me, and I want to make an, em I want to emphasize this, in that really cool kind of Art Deco lettering. The all is italicized. Oh, interesting. Because the jazz singer, if you remember, was not all talking. There were other movies, too, where, yeah. you know, it was a silent movie, and then there'd be a little... Somebody would say something, yeah. Yeah, an interlude of, mu of music or something, and they wanted to make sure you knew, oh, this isn't just a talking picture. This is an all-talking picture. <laughs> they talk from beginning to end, and that's just so charming. Love it. Uh, anyway, it's, uh, this is a Daniel Boone story. Uh, the Great Meadow, Meadow is a Daniel Boone story, and we got to remember that in 1931, Daniel Boone is not that far in the rearview mirror. Daniel Boone, you know, the, the, I mean, in, in all fairness, 
Um, Daniel Boone is Revolutionary War period, and that's not much more than 100 years before 1931. Mm. So, you know, there's probably a, a few grandchildren of Daniel Boone floating around. So the, the, the colonial period is still something that they mine a lot in silent films and in early sound films. And um, this one is, you know, if you can get past your memories of Fess Parker on the TV show, you'll actually really, really enjoy it. It's quite well done, and uh, it's a surprisingly smart little script, and uh, I enjoyed it. There's also Calm Yourself with Robert Young and Madge Evans, which is uh, also a pre-code, I think, 1935. It feels a little, it feels like a pre-code film. I'd have to double-check and make sure. I think 35, 36 was about when the code kicked in. Uh, directed by George Seitz, and uh, Robert Young is uh, basically a businessman who gets fired for kissing the boss's daughter and then decides he's got a great idea for a, a business, which is uh, to – basically you will do the things that other people don't want to do. You do the, the, the dirty work, and, and people will pay you to do their dirty work for you. Anyway, so he starts an agency that uh, – that, be, that that specializes in this kind of work, and it's actually very funny and, and goes in directions you would never expect. Uh, and then the last one, I find the, the premise of this to be absolutely hilarious, absolute quiet. It's fun to be thrilled is the tagline here. This uh, stars Lionel Atwell, Irene Hervey, and Raymond Walburn. Uh, this is another uh, all-talking Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer picture, but they didn't say all-talking by this point because it's 1936, so apparently everything is all-talking by 1936. Uh, anyway, the, um, the story here is it's very simple. Absolute quiet uh, is what the, the lead character here, uh, played by Lionel Atwell, desperately wants. He is a, um, he's a millionaire who's had a heart attack, and he needs to, to recover in quiet and silence and peace. Uh, and he can't do it because there are these escaped criminals whose plane crashes on his ranch and it creates mayhem and havoc and he can't get the quiet that he needs to recuperate. It's just, it's a really fun screwball concept. I can't believe that nobody has done something similar to this or even remade this just exact remake film. remake it. It's really very charming. There's so, m I mean, it's really clever. You could do so much more with it today and all the resources that we have. So that's called Absolute Quiet from 1936. Uh, on Blu-ray, uh, Edward II, Derek Jarman's Edward II from 1991, yeah. which he made one of his last films before he, after he died in about 1993, yeah. uh, one of the uh, early young, young, young artists, young filmmakers uh, to succumb to the AIDS ep epidemic yeah. uh, at, at that time. Uh, of course, this is based on Christopher Marlowe's Edward II, yes. but it's done all in modern dress, uh, you know, with the language, but in modern dress, yeah. and, uh, and because it's Derek Jarman, it's kind of gay. It's <laughs> uh, 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 because you know he's Derek Jarman. Uh, it's quite, it's quite an intense uh, adaptation. And uh, Tilda Swinton, fairly young Tilda Swinton, shows yeah. up in this movie, uh, which I had forgotten to be honest with you. This is from Film Movement Classics. Uh, it really is a mesmerizing film, starring Steve Wadding, uh, Waddington uh, and Andrew Tiernan. Um, it also comes with bonus features, including uh, um, a, a documentary featurette and an essay, and and Bruce a uh, yeah, program by uh, Bruce LaBruce, yeah. uh, which, by the way, is also kind of gay. <laughs> because Bruce, Bruce don't play, baby. Go. Uh, we got some criterions here. Tim's got one there, and I've got uh, three over here. Yeah. Uh, it's a great, great month for criterions. 
so from 1975, I'm going to give you the obscure one first. got two classics from totally opposite ends of the spectrum, and then an obscure one here, and then Tim's got another one that's really kind of interesting. Uh, Manila, In the Claws of Light, is a, a Filipino film from 1975, uh, entirely in the Tagalog language. Some Filipino films are in English and sometimes yeah, other languages. Sometimes it's Spanish. Sometimes it's Spanish, yeah. yeah. This is entirely in Tagalog. And uh, this is the, the film that put Lina, Lino Broca, the great Filipino director, on the international map. Yeah. Um, it's really, really, really good. And I am not normally a Lino Broca f- uh, fan, but I, and I had never seen this film. I'd never seen Manila in the Claws of Light. I've seen subsequent films. Um, I wish all the subsequent films were like this. It's really, really great. Uh, it takes a look at Manila and what had happened to it in the 1970s. And... Um, it's 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 really really I, I don't want to call it quite neorealism because it but it's kind of like the Filipino version of neorealism, uh, but it also it's a little bit melodramatic, and uh, somehow it walks the line between those two things and I'm not quite sure why but it's got a real sen- a sensibility all its own uh, about this you know focusing on this uh, this fisherman from a village uh, who's looking for his girlfriend and uh, what happens to him in the meantime it starts to feel kind of like if Douglas Sirk had made the bicycle thief, ah, you know, ah. and you're like, how does that work? It works somehow. It's really, really good. Tons of extras here. A documentary from 1987 by Christian Blackwood, which is all about Lena Broca. And um, it's just really good. Uh, Manila in the Claws of Light. And then the other two that I have are, of course, John Waters' Female Trouble uh, and Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. You could not have two more opposite films. Man. And yet they are both Criterion. That tells you how the people at Criterion just really keep their focus broad. Uh, Female Trouble was made in 1974, and uh, it's not as famous as uh, Pink Flamingos, but it also stars Divine, and it is a John Waters film. What am I going to tell you? It's, it's shot on 16 millimeter, and it's got Mink Stoll and you know Edith Massey and uh, the whole John Waters crew in it, and it's you know. The idea is that crime is beauty, and it just winds up being a shock fest, one thing after the other, and you realize that it's just John Waters. It's you yeah. know he can do whatever he wants. That's John. The Virgin Spring from 1960 is one of my favorite Ingmar Bergman movies. This won Best uh, Foreign Language Film Academy Award for 19 the year 1960, and uh, is taken from a new 2K digital restoration. It is based on a uh, a, a kind of a classic Swedish story. This is not an original story by Bergman. But he adapted it, of course, to his own uh, for his own filmmaking and storytelling style, which is a uh, it's a period film about a um, a young woman who is the village uh, virgin, who is raped and murdered by this gang of uh, kind of ne'er do wells, and how her father, played by uh, Max von Sydow, swears revenge on them, and uh, it, it it's really an extraordinarily well made film. Yeah. It's you know it's myth making and it's it's. Uh, it's it's sort of epic and intimate at the same time, and just unbelievably beautifully photographed. So um, you should check this out. Includes a lot of really really great stuff in the extras. Audio commentary from uh, 2005 when they first released it on DVD by Ingmar Scholar, scholar uh, uh, Ingmar Bergman scholar uh, Birgitta Steen, and then there are also some interviews that they shot at the same time. Ang Lee uh, did an interview for the d- that DVD that's also adapted here. And then a 1975 American Film Institute seminar 
by Bergman, which was recorded uh, in audio only. They put that on here as well. So it's it's terrific. It's really good. I'm going to give you El Sir, the Spanish film we'll talk about yep, in that okay. collection in a second. But I'm going to knock off this Bowling, um, uh, bowling for Columbine, uh, Michael Moore's film, of course, which is a, docu a document, 2002 document of the 1999 uh, tragic Columbine yes. uh, shooting in Colorado. This, uh, is, th this uh, and much as I don't like Michael Moore, I will say this is some of my favorite moments in any Michael Moore film. Yeah, I I he is as close to actually making a documentary That's in it. this film as he ever ever, ever has That's in any film. Michael Moore doesn't actually make documentaries, yeah. people. Just but the stuff in here, in particular, yeah. with Marilyn Manson, is yeah. great. Yeah. Now, really there's great. also the stuff in here with Charlton Heston. Yeah. Which is not great. Because he, he sort of cast Charlton Heston in a light uh, that was untrue to the character of Charlton Heston because he stands here with that rifle at the NRA, yeah. you know, whatever he's talking and about. He suffered from hand. Alzheimer's and already. And, you know, and, it's, he, he and, he, and he sandbags him at his house. He sandbags and, and he takes him out of context. Charlton Heston, yeah. of course, was a great civil rights uh, 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 leader. Marched and, uh, with Martin Luther yeah. King. And the NRA was, was only beginning to become the organization then yeah. that it has become now. It was At the NRA, at the, I'll put it this way, at that time, or before this, not long before this, I had been in the NRA. <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. a veteran, dude, six years, United States Air Force. There are people who still call me Sergeant Cogshell. Yeah. So, yeah, got a lot of guns. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the organization's changed. Um, nevertheless, Michael is sort of ignoring that, but this documentary about this tragic yeah. event, which in, in some ways launched uh, the 20-plus-year-long, the yeah. the, the, the you know, yeah. string of these sort of events, actually uh, comes up upon something extremely powerful here. It's a powerful documentary. This is... This, of course, is Criterion Collection, so it's uh, approved by the director. There's a documentary here featuring more. Uh, Chief architect Pearl Deal, who works with Michael on just about everything that he does, uh, has gathered together all of his programs and uh, festival interviews and just all of the things that circulated around the time news interviews and stories uh, the, the film was coming out. So if you want to sort of review uh, where all of this began and how it has led us to where we are now, pick up this uh, director-approved uh the Bowling for Columbine by filmmaker Michael Moore. Uh, El Sur is a movie I had never heard of. Spanish, and Spanish director. Yeah, Victor Eris. Beautiful film. Made it in 1983, uh, and uh, it's kind of like Spanish magical realism, yeah. uh, all set around the uh, the experience of this young, kind of against, against the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War, uh, this young girl and her father, and um, it's it's really beautiful to look Quite at. Quite lyrical film. Jose Luis Alcane is the uh, cinematographer. D I'm dying to see other movies that he shot because this just uh, kind of came out of the blue. Um, so yeah, I mean it's a it's a really it's a it's a very interesting film. Curious to see some more of the films from the people that made this, and a lot of great uh, extras on here as well. Uh, you know, a new program on the making of the film from 2012, and um, a a really a very smart subtitle translation, which is brand new, that's uh, nice and crisp. And then there's also this um, 1996 uh, television episode with uh, Spanish film critics that were talking about the film, which is, is kind of interesting, gives you a little bit more in the backdrop. So uh, El Sur, E-L-S-U-R, a film by Victor Eris, worth checking out. Mm. Criterion will dip deep and sometimes and just give you something that Find you've never some heard interesting of. interesting stuff. Great. Are we going to dip into some of this uh, yeah, let's do it. Let's stuff do right it. here? Blu-ray, yeah. Curse of the Cat People. Uh, a Robert Weiss film, Gunther von Frisch, but a Robert Weiss film, nevertheless. Uh, Simon Simon, Simon uh, Kim Smith, Jane Randolph. Well, you know, this is just a neat movie. Uh, what are you going to say? Curse of the Cat Thief, uh, just a wonderful atmosphere, black and white, uh, uh, 1944 uh, uh, film. Uh, this, is, this, this is the way horror movies were made back in the day. 
and, and, you know, uh, what can I say? This, it's, it's the kind of thing that you can't help but enjoy. Um, this has all kinds of special features on it, including a new audio commentary uh, with uh, author and historian Steve Haberman uh, and Greg Mank uh, and some excerpts and interviews with the actress, the lead actress, uh, Simone Simon, and as, as well as some video stills. It's just beautiful. Produced by the great Val Luton, Hearst of the Cat People. And uh, got some stuff here from the Arrow collection, both Arrow Academy and Regular Arrow. So, of course, the Regular Arrow titles are more uh, exploitation-y, and the Arrow uh, Academy stuff is, is the artier stuff. I think at least one of these probably belongs in the other, but that's the Abel Ferrara, and you know, yeah. Abel's already always a thing. So I'm going to start off with the uh, Duccio Tassari Spaghetti Western films, A Pistol for Ringo, and The Return of Ringo. Uh, it's amazing how, how this spaghetti western stuff just keeps showing up. And so many directors made so many of these movies all around the same time. Uh, and yet somehow Ennio Morricone scored them all. I don't know how that worked. Yeah. Every last one of them. Yeah. Whoever the director was. So the star of uh, Tenebre, the Dario Argento movie, Giuliano Gemma, is the star of Pistol for Ringo where uh, he has to uh, kind of go undercover with a bunch of Mexican banditos to rescue Lorella de Luce. And then, of course, Return of the Ringo, he, you know, now he's got a, you know, he's kind of doing it again. It's basically he re revisits the same thing, uh, except now it's a revenge thing, so it's become like Taken. Somehow every revenge movie is like Taken <laughs> now. Does you ever notice that? Anyway, um, oh. these, so these films were, were hugely uh, successful at the time. I had never really heard of them, but the music is worth checking out all by itself. Tons of extras on here, uh, as per usual with all the Arrow stuff. There is also Vigil uh, by Vincent Ward. Now, Vincent Ward uh, kind of fell off the map a little bit here. He, you know, the last thing that he did was um, the What Dreams May Come, the Robin oh, yeah. Williams film. Yeah, Robin Williams that, was, that was supposed to be his big Hollywood uh debut or whatever, and it didn't really spark for him, so I guess he's gone back to New Zealand and continues to make movies there. Uh, regardless, uh, Vigil is the uh, the film that started it all for him, so this is the, uh, the origin of Vincent Ward's filmmaking career, and uh, it's actually a really good film, and I want him to come and make more stuff in Hollywood. This was uh, screened in uh, Cannes at, on, uh, at the Cannes Film Festival in 1984, which was the very first time they had ever had a New Zealand film there, uh, foreshadowing, mm. you know, a decade later, when or less than a decade later when I was there, and James Campion took home the big award for uh, the piano. Yeah. So uh, a lot of a lot of stuff was uh, was pioneered by this film, and it is very very New Zealand. Now New Zealand movies, as opposed to Australian movies, tend to have a much more mythical quality to them. Yeah. Um, partly because the Aboriginal uh, population in in uh, in Australia has not sort of fueled the filmmaking there with their culture. The way the Maori has. The way the Maori has. Yeah, yeah. Very much. So Maori culture and, you know, English uh, colonial culture all sort of merge in their cinema, and Vigil is definitely one of those. Um, it's I, – I, I don't even know how to even give you the plot without giving too much away. Um, but let's, say, let's just say there's a stranger – uh, who shows up in a small New Zealand village at the same time that something else has happened. Mm. And these things coincide, and they are connected, 
in a way that you will never ever figure out and uh doesn't really even matter eventually so it's a it's a it's a really really great movie it's very mystical and cool and and gritty all at the same time and then uh we also have the addiction the abel ferrara film which is basically a vampire movie but without vampires Lily Taylor is great in this movie. The black and white photography is just stupendous. This really deserves to be an Arrow Academy movie, N uh, but it's I guess they consider it a little bit more culty and exploitation-y. Anyway, uh, it's it's really really eerie and it tells you a lot about uh, Abel Ferrara's state of mind at this particular point in time. Uh, the last two from uh, Arrow Academy include Smash Palace, the uh, first film by Roger Donaldson, who would of course go on to do things like No Way Out. Oh yeah, big job. Yeah, and this was his. This uh, again, a, you know, a New Zealand director. Um, uh, this was. This is a really, really uh, interesting film. Kind of be the beginning of a New Zealand new wave. Uh, basically, it's a little bit more like an Australian film than a New Zealand film, though. And uh, dealing with you know family stresses and uh, ruptured family. This you know former auto racer and his wife and their child, um, and uh, domestic uh, issues that are still relevant today. So. It's a it's a pr it's a pretty great movie and smash what what pa Smash Palace actually means it's the name of a business mm -hmm. movie it's very interesting and then uh, last one here from the Arrow Academy is Black Venus which is the film that French director Abdelatif Kashish made after The Secret of the Grain mm -hmm. which was amazing and which was one of my favorite films of the last twenty years and the Can winner Blue is the warmest color between the two he made this movie which didn't get as much attention but it deserves your attention. Uh, this is the true story of uh, Sartia Bartman, who also was known under the moniker Hot and Tot Venus. And she was a South African woman who was taken uh, from her home in South Africa and, uh, and put on, sh on display, yeah. kind of like the Elephant Man, yeah, yeah, yeah. in London um, because of her, her body. Because mm -hmm. being an African woman, she was, she was of a, a curvier nature oh yeah. than they were accustomed to. And now we know why Jessica Rabbit looks like that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's where that that's going. And um, it, it, it's a it's a really a, a fascinating film with an amazing lead performance by the Cuban actor um, Yahima Torres. So uh, it's fascinating film, really beautifully done. Let me knock these off, uh, these two off, real quick. One of them, Night of the Lepus, 1972. What I love about this movie, a giant rabbits who are rabbits, giant rabbit rabbits. Yeah. Uh, which is always cool. Uh, and you know, 1972 pre-CGI, so the giant rabbits are just big ass rabbits, man. Yeah. They just built some big ass rabbits. You sure. know, shag carpeting and that kind of stuff. Yeah. You, know, you got yourself a giant rabbit. Other thing I like about this movie, DeForest Kelly. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, Bones from yeah. Star Trek, 1972. He's got hair. He's got mustache. He's wearing the little thing. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, Janet Lee also in the movie along with Roy Calhoun on Blu-ray. All kinds of special features, including a new 2K scan uh, here, audio commentary by Arthur Lee Gabon uh, and uh, a couple of pop culture historians and whatnot. The other one I want to mention, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, of course, the wonderful it's father finally of on Blu -ray. Mario Van Peebles, uh, uh, the father of Mario Van Peebles, Melvin Van Peebles, finally on Blu-ray. Of course, this movie is a, uh, a classic and legendary movie for a number of reasons, the content of the movie itself, when it came out, how he made it, how he marketed it, uh, the careers that he created uh, for him, the career that he created for his son, Mario, who, by the way, is in this movie, yeah. uh, doing incredibly in inappropriate <laughs> things. Uh, Ma Mario, c cut that out. Um, this is the story of a, of, of a black uh, um, gigolo, and uh, he saves that black panther from the police. It's really, really a neat movie. Then he 
has to go on the run uh, from the cops and other people who are after him. And the black community comes to his aid along with the Hells Angels, which is kind of wacky. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what it's all about. Look, this movie, uh, this movie is uh, controversial for a bunch of reasons, but it's one of the movies, along with the, the Watermelon Man, yeah. that began the new wave of black cinema. Yeah, uh, uh, that, and that it's not you know it's, this day. it's often lumped in with the quote unquote black exploitation era, but no, uh, this, it, is, this it's is pre not, that. It's yeah. pre that. Yeah. It's uh, it, and it's it's stylistically really really challenging. I mean, it, it does thing he does things here that uh, are, are every bit as revolutionary from a standpoint of style as was Easy Rider. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. All kinds of special features here, newly scanned 35, uh, from the s uh, 4K from the 35 millimeter original, interviews with Melvin uh, and Mario, uh, uh, small documentaries, Q&A questions, uh, 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 all kinds of stuff here for people to check out, including a wonderful little booklet essay by Travis Crawford. Check that out. Uh, sweet, sweet back, badass song. Uh, and then a bunch here from uh, Kino. Kino Classics, another release from the American Film Theater line, which continues to be uh, something that kind of like a, almost a cult following for that. Um, the So this is called Jacques Brel is Alive and Well and Living in Paris. This requires a little bit of explanation. Jacques Brel, for those who don't know, a very famous French crooner of a previous generation, and this movie was made in 1975, but it has a sensibility that was very much in Hollywood in the 1960s. It's uh, it's kind of a they 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 want to say that it's a cabaret style musical, but it's it's really not quite that. It's um, it, it, it they tr they take a lot of uh, Brel's songs, and uh, they turned them into English language songs. And then put it all into kind of a, um, uh, a, a singing policeman kind of um, weird offbeat musical. And um, it's bizarre and it's fascinating and it's compelling. And when you watch it, you realize that it's movies like this that inspired things like One from the Heart and Xanadu. Really, that's sort of where this, uh, this kind of musical filmmaking all begins. Anyway. It's a one-of-a-kind movie from 1975, and uh, it's, it's just it's an anachronism, and it's weird, and it's cool all at the same time. Uh, a little bit more conventional, a bunch of interesting classics from uh, the Kino Classics line. The Woman in the Window with Edward G. Robinson and Joan Bennett, directed by Fritz Lang during his, uh, his noir period in Hollywood. And uh, this also was written by Nunnally Johnson, yep. who seems to be dominating the show today. Uh, a, a prolific screenwriter, and uh, this is a really, really cool noir. Um, Joan Blondell, Joan Bennett, not Joan Blondell, Joan Bennett um, is kind of the femme fatale here, but uh, it also has, you know, Raymond Massey, and, uh, you know, it's just, it's a really cool stylized noir. Also have the, we the uh, Western The Big Country uh, by William Wyler, which is not one of the greatest all-time westerns. It's a little bit bloated, but uh, you know, it's it's it, and Gregory Peck produced this as well as kind of a vehicle for himself and Gene Simmons, and you know, it's loaded with stars. Um, but the uh, what's commonly n remembered about this film is that it has one of the all-time great scores, and uh, you know, Jerome Moss just nailed it for this. He was nominated for an Oscar, didn't win, incredibly, but it's a, it's a, it's one of the all-time great movie western scores in particular. Uh, I Jane Doe ah. is also quite fun. This is uh, from a brand new 4K scan of the original 35 negative, and it looks gorgeous. So they got the original fine grain neg from Paramount and just did a beautiful, beautiful transfer of it, scanning it in 4K. And uh, 
it's this is kind of a forgotten film in many respects from 1948. Um, it's a courtroom drama uh, about a uh, an American pilot who uh, has committed bigamy while in France. And uh, I don't know if this the story necessarily is as relevant today as it was then, but it's so beautifully, beautifully shot, and it's beautifully acted, and gosh, it just looks so gorgeous in that transcript. And then the last one here is Alfred Hitchcock's Under Capricorn, which is a really weird film for Hitchcock because it's a period film. This is also a 4K restoration. It's shot in color uh, during his British period. This is 1949, before he came to Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's basically a for-hire gig. It's all all takes place in Australia, and uh, you know there's a there's this guy from England who Joseph played by Joseph Cotton, who's been banished there because he's a he's a criminal, and uh, then you have kind of a, a drawing room series of situations in Australia, which was not shot in Australia. It was shot by Jack Cardiff on a on a back lot in uh, in London. But here's the thing: there's a shot here that is one of those continuous, uninterrupted single-take shots, yeah. which is the first time Hitchcock tried that, and that's what led to Rope many years later. And that's why it's worth uh, watching this, is to see certain stylistic things evolve. In any case, there's an audio commentary by the uh, film historian Pat Ellinger, and uh, some uh, audio interviews, and then a uh, thing on Claude Chabrol and Alfred Hitchcock, and the original trailer. So that is Under Capricorn, absolutely worth checking out. Uh, from MVD uh, Video, Jean-Claude Van Damme is Lionheart, early Jean-Claude Van Damme, yeah. so this is about 1990 or, or, or so. Uh, he plays a French legionnaire who has to go and find his brother and uh, all this kind of stuff. Ends up fighting this sort of gladiator-style battles, you know, mm -hmm. that Jean-Claude Van Damme sort of way. I still say Jean-Claude Van Damme is the only actor ever to never speak a believable word of dialogue in a film. Not one, not <laughs> ever. Not never has said a word you actually believe in a film, Jean-Claude Van Damme, but that's okay because that's not his job. This thing is packed with all kinds of special features um, uh, on it. Way too many to mention here. Uh, but if you're a Jean-Claude Van Damme aficionado and you just love it, you got to check it out. Yeah. Um, that's one of those, those, those VHS sort of rentals from back in the day. Abominable, also from MVD. Um, it stars Matt McCoy. I love Matt McCoy. Matt McCoy is in a movie called The, uh, the Hand That Rocks the Cradle some years ago in the, in the early 90s. Hell of a thriller. This is not quite a, as hell of a thriller as that. This is only a, like a 2006 film, but it is kind of neat. Involves uh, the Sasquatch, the Yeti, the Bigfoot, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's about a guy who gets paralyzed in a mining, uh, mine, uh, uh, mountain climbing accident. Uh, you know, gets himself together, goes back out to the cabin in the woods, and who does he find? Bigfoot. Bigfoot yeah. is in the woods trying to kill a guy in a wheelchair. Love it. Hey, you got to love a movie about a Bigfoot trying to kill a Yeti, a uh, Yeti trying to kill a guy in a wheelchair. Not enough Bigfoot and Yeti movies yeah. anymore, although Littlefoot is coming out. Ah, yes, indeed. The animated film. Uh, again, packed with all kinds of neat and fun special, uh, 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 special features. Pick it up, check it out. It's a lot of fun. All right, and now we're going to wrap the show out with our interview with our good friend Michael Schlesinger, uh, and who just did The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster, also from Kino. Um, and, you know, Michael is an amazing guy. He's, again, the, he's the, the godfather of American uh, repertory distribution. He worked at Paramount and Sony and uh, MGM. It was, so, it was you know, uh, not Sony when he was when, uh, – it was Columbia, Columbia basically, yeah, specifically Columbia. Columbia. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, he, uh, he, was, he was part of the restoration of It's All True, the Orson Welles documentary from wonderful. 1942. Yeah. And uh, he's just a, he's a, he's a really wonderful figure in, uh, in American, uh, American film life, and we are so, welcome for, uh, so gra grateful for him. 
And uh, we sat down with him to talk about the, uh, these amazing shorts in The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. And without further ado, here is that interview. Uh, Tim and I are here, and we are unbelievably privileged to uh, be doing a, an in-person interview with our friend Michael Schlesinger, uh, who is uh, considered one of the legendary figures. I know, I see, he's, I'm, getting the, I'm getting the embarrassed smile. <laughs> uh, who is a legendary figure in, in classic movie distribution and in many respects restoration as well. I mean, a, a fixture in, well, it's all true, the, the, the Wells film. Well, um, I, I've never done any actual restoration. The best I could say is that maybe uh, I might have instigated some stuff, but I, I don't restore films. It's, but it's it's it you're it's in your blood, keeping well, keeping it all alive. You know, you you know archivists, and you've worked with archivists. Let's just say that um, that the restorers are the chefs, and I'm the waiter. There we go. Uh, well, Michael, you're in the restaurant, baby. That matters. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And by so, the way, we clearly have uh, differing definitions of unbelievably privileged. Well, you, <laughs> you worked you worked at MGM, uh, Paramount, Columbia. You know, you were you were you've been pivotal in keeping classic films alive for a very long time. That and, I will cop to. Yes, and uh, you you are you of course work with the with TCM as well, and you have uh, made a debut as a filmmaker now, and that's what we're talking to you primarily about today because Kino Lorber has just released on DVD the Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. Uh, the subtitle here is Two Madcap Morons on a Mission of Mayhem. And then you put the... Uh, the, long, the, the Was that your idea to put the no, Orson uh, Welles? Uh, it's terrific. Xavier Carbaga, or a.k.a. Leslie Carbaga, who designed the cover, he put the It's Terrific, which is... From Citizen from Kane. Citizen Kane. That's yeah. great. And I said, well, why not? It's the greatest directorial debut since Citizen Kane. <laughs> well, they, this is a collection of short films, five in total, that you you made over how long a period of time? Okay, well let's let's go. Uh, I don't know how much time we have. But, well, let's uh, do it. The history. Um, Nick Santa Maria and Will Ryan uh, some years ago sort of created this 1930s style vaudeville comedy team called Biffle and Schuster. Uh, it was kind of an ad hoc thing. They you know made occasional live appearances, uh, things of that nature. Nick and another guy did some flash animations, but th they were never really. The, the, the characters were kind of nebulous at best. And then one day, uh, this would have been the summer of 2012, uh, Nick posted on his Facebook page a photo of them you know, in costume holding up an empty picture frame and sort of like grinning through it. And then me being me, I posted as a comment uh, from their classic two-reeler, It's a Frame Up with Franklin Pangborn as the art <laughs> gallery. <owner. laughs> and, um, and then I thought about it, and I, I've had a, you know, I have... Done some production. I, I co-produced some of Larry Blamire's movies. Uh, I obviously was involved in It's All True. Uh, I wrote and produced and voice directed the uh, American version of Godzilla 2000, which really was a crash course in post-production. And um, and I've been trying, you know, trying to sell the film for a long time. And uh, the problem is that uh, the kind of things I want to do are not the kind of things the studios want to make. So um, I thought. A light went off, and, and I thought, well, why not, you know, actually make a Biffle and Schuster short and then use it as kind of a calling card? And um, so I emailed them and said, what do you guys think? And uh, they said, well, of course, well, let's do it. So um, I wrote a script. Uh, I went on Kickstarter, uh, fell short by a razor-thin 89%. And then <laughs> I thought, well, what the heck? You know, I, I was comfortably well off, as Daffy Duck would say. So I figured I can I can pay for it myself, 
so uh, we then shot it in December of 2012. Fortunately, I have a lot of actor friends, and I knew a lot of the, the Larry Blameyer people, both sides of the family, so uh, I had no problem uh, getting the cast and the crew. Um, and the, the Kyoto Brothers actually rented us uh, their studio uh, for a very uh, good friend's price because we shot it in December, and they're normally dark that month anyway, so we found money for them. We were freezing our asses off, but uh, we got it done. And then um, the problem was that we'd get around, and, and uh, the problem with film festivals is that film festivals want bleak and depressing and soul-crushing and, you know, subtitled, <laughs> people being oppressed in a third-world country, directed by Angelina Jolie, and, uh, you know, guys, uh, guys in hats making stupid puns and, you know, hitting each other with their hats and things like that. Ostensibly in the 30s. Yes. Uh, black and white. Uh, it's, it's, it's too frivolous. You know, we, we just can't have frivolous. Our audience doesn't want frivolous. Um, and, and even my friend Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who um, came to the screening, and uh, she said, here's the problem. Nobody's going to notice how well-made it is, how funny it is, how inexpensively you did it for. All they're going to see is black and white and guys in hats telling jokes they don't get. And in a way, she was right. You know? uh, so I, I have this one short. What am I going to do with it? And then I said, well, the only thing I can do is bite the bullet and make more. <laughs> and then that way, we've at least got enough for a DVD. Yeah. And, you know, th theoretically, we could put some of them together and, and make a theatrical, you know, yeah. like we used to do the Three Stooges Laugh-O-Rama, that kind of thing. So uh, I bit the bullet again, and uh, we made, technically, we made four more. We actually did a fifth. We did a one-reel Vitaphone short from yeah. 1928, which is on the DVD as an extra. But we shot that literally half an hour uh, right after a lunch break. Um, uh, the boys had written the script themselves, so we just set up the cameras, rolled it, and, you know, done so great and then we shot it you know we had we've done a, bu a bunch of extra things too um we did um, for on the imitation of wife we had talked about in the early days of sound they would sometimes do foreign language versions of uh of films because um silent films obviously you can just replace the intertitles you can't do that with the talkie and i'm sure a lot of people have seen for example some of the spanish laurel and hardy where they were reading the lines phonetically, or of course the Spanish Dracula. Mm -hmm. So after we wrapped one scene in Imitation of Wife, I said, you know, this is a good time. Let's do the Spanish one. So we just <laughs> did the scene again. I just again, I just rolled the camera and let them ad lib in a combination of Spanish, Spanglish, and gibberish <laughs> until they <laughs> tired, and then we just cut and uh, it came out great. And then we did picked up some odd bits later on, as a lot of people know. I think. It's a Madman, Mad, Mad World is the greatest movie ever. <laughs> I'm sorry, let me rephrase. The greatest movie ever with the periods, <laughs> like on The Simpsons. And, uh, and everybody's teasing me about Biffle and Schuster having their cameo cut out of the movie. <laughs> and then one day, like a couple years later, I thought, you know what? Why don't we just do that? So uh, we went up uh, into Chatsworth, uh, up in the mountains, near where some of Mad World was actually shot. And my costume designer found a couple of the old-fashioned prison costumes, you know, with these vertical stripes, mm -hmm. and uh, and even a plastic ball and chain. And we did a very quick scene where they're hitchhiking, like they've just escaped from prison. Uh, and the joke was that uh, as the cars go by, they get splashed with buckets of water, and then they do all their old catchphrases. And that was it. It was like forty-five seconds. 
and right. we matted it to 276 to 1, so it looked like it was shot in ultrafine resolution. And then while we were there, and they were already in their old age makeup, we then um, shot an interview with them and, uh, doing basically the Sunshine Boys as a couple of old Jews, you know, and um, in their prison costumes. And, and we just rolled the cameras. And again, they ad-libbed for 10 minutes in character, and it was hilarious. And then we put that on the DVD. And what we did was the, 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 the supposition was that a local TV station had filmed the inter shot the interview, you know, ahead of time. And then when their scene got cut for the movie, the footage was just lying in the vaults for 50-odd years until it was discovered. And then we faded it to magenta, like, oh, so <laughs> like old Eastman. That's so great. Well, the the uh, the shorts that are included here are the Biffle murder case, imitation of wife, which I think is the greatest pun ever, Schmoboat, Bride of Finkelstein, it and it's a frame up, which was the first one you shot, right? Yeah, but it's the last in the fake yeah. timeline. Yeah. Uh, and and one thing I wanted to do uh, because back when I was at, at Columbia, Sony, uh, you know, people want to do three Stooges festivals, and I would always you know try to arrange them very carefully because the one thing you don't want to do especially with the Stooges, is, is the one thing you want to do is avoid repetition. Mm -hmm. And that's, I wanted to do this here, so I wanted to make sure that not only were all the shorts different from each other, but that they were different in each short, uh, how they responded to the material. Uh, so in one short, they're behaving like Abbott and Costello, and another, they're more like Laurel and Hardy, and another, they're more like Open Crosby, you know, fitting. So that way, their characterizations change a little bit as well. They're still recognizably Biffle and Schuster. But, for example, in, in Biffle murder case, uh, Schuster's constantly slapping and hitting Biffle, poking him in the eye, you know, all the traditional Mo Howard stuff. In Imitation of Wife, where they have to work together as the, because they've got a problem, Schuster doesn't hit Biffle at all. Well, he does. He stomps his foot once. <laughs> but, um, but that's it. And, of course, there's none of that in Schmoboat because, again, they are playing themselves because it's a review. So um, they, they're, they're not playing – they're not like Hope and Crosby – playing, you know, their characters in a road movie, they're hoping Crosby as they really are mm. in real life. So, and I think that's one of the reasons that we worked very hard to make these all different from each other, so people, if they wanted to, could watch them all at once and not feel that they were being clobbered over the head by the same jokes over and over again, unless it was a specifically designated running line. Like, I'm innocent, I'm feeling innocent. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. Great. I mean, it's so much fun to watch. What? Thank you. I, I'm. I'm. What? I'm. Some, I've always wanted to ask you about is this: the from a filmmaking standpoint, being someone who is a film historian and a scholar of style, movies have changed a lot over the decades. You can tell a 1930s film from a 40s, from a 50s, from 60s, from the 70s, mm -hmm. from the way they are shot. So sure. consciously. Uh, how did you go about saying, I've got to make sure I'm going to shoot it a certain way so that it's unmistakably of the era? Well, I have an authenticity fetish, as I like to say. So I, I was absolutely dead sure I wanted to make unsuspect, unsuspecting people think that they really are watching something that they think, well, we've actually pulled that off in a few ways. <laughs> uh, but the, here's the thing. It, it's like I grew up on this stuff, as did Will and Nick. It is, as I've said, it is in our DNA. We eat sleep, breathe, live this kind of comedy. So it's not that difficult. You know, when you've seen so many of them, you sort of in just instinctively know how it should be shot. For example, if you notice in today's movies, whenever there's a close-up, the top of the frame will always be cropping the heads off of, of people, right, almost down to the eyebrows. And then there'll be always dead space under their chins. 
and you think it's misframed, but no, it's Panavision. It can't be misframed. And now that it's digital, you can't misframe anyway. Mm. But somehow it was consciously shot like that. And that's not how things were shot back then. So in I told the camera operators, I said, headroom. I always want to see the, not just the top of their heads, but the top of their hats. And there should be a little space in between because that's how pictures look back then. Um, the, um, you know, we shot them, you know, in a 30 style, which is the camera only moves when it needs to, mm -hmm. to follow action. Uh, I like long takes. You know, I know actors like long takes because they get to show off. And, of course, since these guys supposedly came from vaudeville, they were used to doing their act in one. So uh, we did long takes as much as we could. And uh, in, in Frame Up, I wrote a complete Abbott and Costello-style routine called Oil or Water. And, um, and I said, we're going to do this in one take. And it, it took 12. And that's, that's with a few false starts within the 12. I'd say, all right, back to one, try again. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then we did the 13th wild take because they wanted to ad lib a little bit, which we did. But the 12th take was the one where they were like 98% there and then stopped. Fantastic. Yeah. How, how, Thank you. How, how long did it take to shoot all of them all together? Over how many, I mean, it, it took quite a while. I mean, individually, I, I yeah. think you're shooting for what, a, right. few, a couple of weeks or something? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, well, uh, we shot uh, Frame Up uh, was uh, three full days and two half days spread out over the course of a week. Mm -hmm. Because uh, there were a couple of days where we did exteriors, which was a pain in the ass. I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I have to. Um, on on um, on the on the other four, what we rented a studio for a month, which they loved, because this was a studio that generally had uh, people come in for maybe two days to shoot a commercial or a music video. So to have one stage occupied for a whole month was heaven for them. And uh, again, they gave us a very nice deal. So what we did was we spent the first week building the sets and rigging the lights. And then we shot four days. Uh, uh, let's see, we shot Imitation of Life first. So that was four, four days we shot that. We then took two days off while they redressed the set and relit the set, then shot a Brooklyn murder case for four days. Took another two days off, redressed the set for The Bride of Finkelstein. Shot that in three and a quarter days. We actually wrapped early on that one, so everybody got a nice little day off. Two more days to redress the set, and then we shot uh, Mo Boat in three days. That's amazing. And then one day to strike the sets, and boom, here we got. Well, you know, back then, the old shorts, the, the Columbia two-reelers, even at the beginning, they were shooting them in four days. And I figured, you're, you're looking at 20 minutes of film. That's about five minutes a day. That's actually pretty good. Mm. You know, if you multiply it, if you, so let's say you make an 80-minute movie, you quadruple that, that's 16 days. And back then, for, you know, a non-A picture, Less than a month to knock it off. What is the um, genesis of your very specific interest in this kind of comedy, uh, this period? Uh, you just grew up watching it and exactly, loving it. Exactly. Yeah, in the it? '30s is my favorite decade. It is for a lot of us, and uh, we just it it just feels like home. Does that make sense? No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, look, I grew up watching this stuff too. The Abbott right. and Costellos, the Bowery Boys, the yes, uh, exactly. all of these sort of things. Mm -hmm. Really, frankly, take it all the way back to the Little Rascals if you had to. Sure. Uh, and it's and, and it, there's a certain style of comedy. It has a certain sort of a uh, pace to it. Even William Powell and Merloy, some of what they were doing, the Thin right. Man series, is, yeah. is what you're talking about. It's um yeah, it was um you know it was unfussy. Maybe that's the word we're looking for. But it was bright and snappy because when, especially in the in the earlier part of the decade, you know, people were in the middle of the depression. They wanted to go to the theaters 
you know, if they can get afforded even, you know, to have their burdens light and they want to escape the cares of the day for three or four hours. Relax with a double feature and a short and a cartoon and whatever. Mm -hmm. Comedy and even a serial cast or whatever was happened to be playing. They just wanted to escape the everyday world. I think we've taken that too far now. You know, we've escaped reality. Yeah, well, the everyday world is, well, you know. Yeah, but it's the same thing now more than ever. I think we want to escape. Yeah. So, but it's tough, you know, because comedy has changed. That kind of traditional vaudeville style comedy, you know, slapstick and snappy one-liners and things like that, that ran about a century and then kind of frittered away in the 80s. And now we have this sort of smug condescending thing this where it's all attitude you don't even need jokes and uh and it's all basically toilet based humor or sex based humor because we've become so politically correct you know you can't do anything that's ethnic based or 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 even nationality based without people screaming at you and so this is all that's left and and i think people have you, you, that kind of comedy basically exists anymore only on the stage. Uh, there's a wonderful play uh, on Broadway right now called The Play That Goes Wrong, which is hilarious, old-fashioned farce. And and on some sitcoms, especially the multicam ones, which are still joke-oriented, like The Big Bang Theory, mm. uh, where you where it's still joke-oriented because you've got an audience there on the, in the studio and you have to make them laugh. Well, I think the the availability of this could change that. I think if people enough people see this, uh, they'll realize that there's a there's a hope for this. There's a future for this kind of stuff. I like think so. Are you? Is there is there a chance there will be more Biffle and Schuster? Well, I call this zombie vaudeville. It's like we're bringing it back from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, certainly we'd like there to be more. I mean, I I would like to see it continue as a streaming series, you know, on Netflix or Amazon or Hulu. I, uh, we do these things very cheaply. I mean, even uh, even with everybody working for their normal price, we could probably do these things for like a hundred, hundred twenty-five thousand each. And I, I've read that uh, the average episode of The Man in the High Castle uh, costs eleven million dollars. And I think we could probably do hundreds of them <laughs> for that kind of money. And uh, I've got titles and log lines and assorted jokes for at least twenty-five more. And Jesse Levy, who um, co-starred in one of the shorts, has written three scripts on his own. We've been dicking around with the idea for a feature, uh, as well as a fake uh, episode of their radio show. Uh, they continue to make live appearances when they can. We've actually recorded several of those, and we're thinking of maybe editing some of that into a separate DVD. So, um, yeah, all things are possible. It's um, I'm but. A, it's going to have to be somebody else's money at this point. <laughs> I used up all my man money. And B, uh, being an old person, um, uh, I've got so many other things I'd like to do while I'm still ambulatory. So, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I wouldn't mind making a couple more, but I, I think at some point somebody else is going to have to take over and do them. Because, like I say, I've got other things I'd like to do and not a lot of time to do that. You know, my great regret is that maybe – didn't happen 30 years ago, but, you know, we can't rectify over what might have been. Well, uh, to, and to segue just from that to something more general, uh, having having sort of seen so much over the course of your career in terms of how people are receptive to older movies and newer movies, one of, the, one of the gripes that we have on this podcast is that so many of the studios now seem to be forgetting their libraries. They seem to be just sort of throwing them under the bus. And I'm not going to name the studios, but they're – 
There are two in particular that seem to have absolutely no concern whatsoever for their library. I'd say more than two. But, but you also have to remember that, that studios are not necessarily monolith. So most of the studios, and that includes Universal, and that includes Sony, and that includes Fox, and certainly Warner Brothers, um, their asset management departments are preserving things, not just features, but also shorts and cartoons yeah. and live theater. But what's happening is, after those films are being preserved, they're just going back up on the shelf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's the problem. You know, as I like to say, preservation without access is kind of pointless. Mm. Because what's the point of saving a movie if nobody gets a chance to see it? I was very, very blessed. Um, I had friends at Universal in their asset management department who, as they were screening the check prints for the things they were preserved, they invited me to come to the screening. And uh, and in fact, I was giving them suggestions because. Um, they said quite bluntly, once they preserved all the A pictures, they're now looking at literally thousands of B movies, and they said, we have no idea what any of this stuff is. Tell us what's good. Mm. So I gave them some suggestions, and then when I ran out, you know, they just started picking titles at random. And I sat there watching these things, and they're absolutely wonderful. Um, and it, 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 But at the same time, there was this chilling thought that there would be maybe three or four of us in the screening room. And I'm thinking... We're the first people to see these pictures in 60, 70, 80, 90, even 100 years. Mm. And we may be the last people to see them. And it's, it's thrilling and, and it's frightening and it's depressing all at the same time. Now, I help run a, a classic film festival called Cinecon, which runs every Labor Day weekend here in Los Angeles. And uh, a lot of those pictures we've been getting out and on the big screen and the studios are happy to provide them because they know at least somebody's going to see them mm. and, and they are going to be appreciated. Um, last year, for example, big, uh, I, one of the things I wanted to show was a picture called Tower of the Press, uh, which Sam Fuller wrote in 1943 before he be became a director. Uh, and I particularly wanted to show it because it's literally about fake news. And, uh, and it also co-stars Lee Tracy. So it's like the only newspaper picture to involve the two great icons of newspaper pictures, Sam Fuller and Lee Tracy. And it, give the cliche, it blew the roof off the dump. People were screaming and cheering and going nuts. And I thought, you know, for the 64-minute B picture. And I thought, boy, if I knew I was going to get this kind of reaction, I would have given it a better time slot. <laughs> <laughs> but we also ran a, a universal picture called North of the Klondike with Andy Devine and Broderick Crawford and Lon Chaney and Evelyn Ankers. Again, just a 60-minute B picture. You know, about, you know, loggers up in the, in the timberland and all that. And that got an incredible reaction, too. And and we've run a lot of universal swing musicals over the years. And, and they, they cheer and they love it. I mean, granted, it's, uh, you know, preaching to the choir. But there's no reason those pictures can't appeal to other people as well if they give them a chance. I mean, we're, we're nuts. I mean, every time a beloved character actor comes on, like Franklin Pangborn or Shemp Howard or Charles Lane or Jack Norton or Roscoe Pines, we all go, yeah. Because... <laughs> You know, we love them. They, I mean, they didn't get that in 1942. But, you know, today we treasure those people for what they bring to every movie. They're kind of like family. And in a sense, that's sort of, you know, bringing it back to Biffle and Schuster for just a moment, that's sort of what I tried to do then because the supporting actors aren't playing the characters. They're playing the actors playing the characters. Mm -hmm. So I've told this story before, but I'll repeat it again. Um, Imitation of Wife is the typical bringing the boss home for dinner scenario. And for a role like that, you think Vernon Dent, the guy who, the 
Sharks and all the Three Stooges shorts. It was the big heavy set guy with the mustache <laughs> who gave the world the phrase, hey, where are those three new guys? Right after this Zolak <laughs> crash. And uh, so I called up my actor friend, Glenn Toronto, and I said, how'd you like to play Vernon Dent? He said, oh, I'd love it. I said, great, grow a mustache. And that is literally all the direction I gave him. He showed up on the set the first day. He was Vernon Dent. I didn't have to tell him how to do a single thing. He had, he knew exactly what to do, and he was fabulous. So, you know, and obviously that makes directing a, a, an actor a lot easier, too, if uh, they're literally doing, playing somebody else. But, uh, but, uh, but that level of familiarity for, you know, film buffs who say, oh, he's playing Vernon Dent and watching as he does all the typical Dent things. Uh, in Frame Up, Bob Picardo uh, plays Arthur Houseman, who's one of the great character drunks, and I sent him a link to a Laurel and Hardy uh, short called Scram, where Houseman is quickly featured. And I told the actors, don't, you don't have to do a full-on impression. You can just suggest the character. Uh, Robert did a full-on. He came on. He absolutely became Arthur Houseman. It was scary how, 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 somebody, how much he channeled him. At least one person said it almost looked like you dug Houseman back up from the dead and put him back to work. That's great, and, you know. And again, so that adds an extra level of fun, you know, for people who realize he's not just playing a drunk; he's playing a guy who was famous for playing a drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a level of uh, engagement that's really, really neat exactly for the right. audience. If you know what you're looking at and you yeah. know what they're doing, that's a lot of fun. And that's another thing we kind of miss about movies today is that we don't have that great community of character actors who would show up in film after film, generally always playing the same type of character. You know, you wanted a grumpy old man, you got Charles Manson. You know, you wanted a, a fussy uh, floor walker or maitre d', you got Frank Lantana. You wanted a drunk, you got Jack Nicholson. You know, yeah. And, uh, there were things that Agnes Moorhead did. There exactly. were things that uh, William yeah. uh, Fred Mertz from uh, there were things William that these Frawley. guys did. Yes, very, yeah. very much so. And you don't have those kind of character actors anymore. You've got the star, and then you get a bunch of, you know, blank faces. Uh, I always say, uh, you remember a few years ago there was a movie called Snakes on a Plane, mm -hmm. and it was Samuel L. Jackson and Keenan Thompson and uh, Juliana Margulies, and in a bunch of nobodies, you know, who apparently were cast for their hotness rather than their ability to act. Yeah. And then you look at this movie, and you think if this had been made back in the '40s, every single person sitting on that airplane would have been a familiar face. Yeah. And every single person would have been playing the persona that we associate with them, and it yeah. would have been absolutely delightful. And here you had three actors who basically had to carry the movie themselves uh, with 20 other people who were just complete lockouts. Yeah. Well, it is, it is wonderful. There's a ton of stuff on here in the extras, bloopers and outtakes, and obviously all the, all the other fun stuff that you shot. The, uh, the DVD is The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. Uh, Michael Schlesinger, thank you so much for sitting with us and talking to us about it. Thank you for having me. A and lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, folks. It's a lot of fun. You got to get it. We we uh, we're gonna put this right at the top of your gift list, uh, your to buy list, whatever list you have. The misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. I'll Thanks. tell you. I'll tell you another thing. Surprise yourself. I, I teach a lot of film, mm -hmm. particularly young people. Yeah. Uh, show this to kids. They oh. show this to kids. Young people, even 12, they will find this absolutely hysterical. I promise you they will. Do I have time for an anecdote? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, we ran um, Bride of Finkelstein uh, a few years ago at uh, Cinefest, which is a similar festival in Syracuse, uh, no longer uh, very splendid. And um, some woman came up to me a little after the short. She had dragged her 17-year-old daughter to watch these old movies. And she hated every single thing she saw except Bride of Finkelstein. 
she the kid said she she loved it do there are there more like this and i thought that would may have been the greatest compliment <laughs> i'd ever gotten so yes and and because these were made in the 30s they're sort of technically family friendly and because there is so much silliness and slapstick i would say yes show your kids this they you know so, you know they'll like it yeah it's in black and white but the, you know children don't really mind that much we didn't mind when we were kids and they'll respond to the to the goofiness and and, and they'll like it and uh, you know we had the same thing with the lost skeleton of cadavera we had people telling us that kids as young as 3 were were enjoying the heck out of it even if they didn't understand all the jokes i will follow your anecdote with my anecdote and close with this i grew up as both of you did uh, on stuff like this my, there used to be a theater in century city here back in the 70s that would show reels of old classic movies, oftentimes silent. And my father, who had worked in, in Hollywood back in the 1930s, would take me there on Saturdays, and we'd sit there and we'd watch Laurel and Hardy, their silence, their, their sounds. We'd watch Chaplin, and I loved it. I, it, was, it, was, it was some was of my... Was this a silent movie theater on Fairfax? No, this oh. was in Century City in the old ABC Entertainment Center. It oh! Was, yeah. Not not the 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 plit. Uh, it was below the plit. It was oh, on the level below them, wow. and it was just a small little. It was a small tiny venue. Those were before my time. And uh, it was uh, you know it, it was it was really extraordinary. And I've tried to replicate some of that. My daughter is five, and Friday nights now are is our old black and white movie night. We've been showing her the movies. And if you ask her what movies have you seen lately, she will tell you. Double Indemnity, Sunset Boulevard, <laughs> Gold Diggers of 1935. She Great. knows she knows the titles. I, I have a friend like that in Cincinnati who has been showing old movies to his grandson, and his favorite is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. That's great. To the point where every time they're going to watch a new movie, the kid always says, a chicken Wilbur in this one? <laughs> oh, that's great. That's fantastic. Well, uh, Abbott and Costello win. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you. It has thank been you. a pleasure, and we, we highly urge all of our listeners, go out and grab The Misadventures of Biffle and Schuster. You will not be disappointed.